So our, our topic this morning is, why does God care who I sleep with? Uh, you've been, I think, just starting a series on God and sex, and it, it just begs that question. Why, why do we even need a series on this issue? Um, it is a compelling question. Um, there is no shortage of awful things for us to be thinking about in the world today. You just look at the news on any day of the week, and there are so many things that we should be concerned with. We, we see injustice, we see abuse, we see poverty, we see issues with our planet. And so for many of us, the, the natural question is, well, surely God has got some other bigger things to be concerned about than what we do in our own bedrooms. Uh, why would he bother with this? Uh, surely his, his mind should be elsewhere. So it's a compelling question. It's also a very sensitive question. All of us have a story when it comes to issues of human sexuality. Uh, this is a question that is relevant to all of us because God has created us to be sexual beings. And I'm conscious that this is, this is going to be very sensitive ground for many of us. Everyone has a story, and for a large number of us, our story is a painful one. Uh, maybe our story is one of, of hurt and vulnerability. Many of us feel damaged when we think about sexuality. Perhaps some of us are conscious of ways we've been damaging to other people. So it's a compelling question. It's a sensitive question. It's also a very personal one. This is going to vary so much from person to person. Each of our stories is going to be unique. Uh, my own story is, is like that of many people in this city, and I'm sure of many people in this room this morning, uh, which is that I've only really experienced romantic and sexual feelings towards other men. I'm going to share more about my, my story tomorrow night, but it, it took me a long time to realize this. I was kind of going through my teenage years in the late 80s, early 90s. It was a very different world then. But I do remember gradually beginning to realize that my, my feelings were different to those of many of my friends at high school. I didn't share the same feelings towards girls that they were constantly talking about. Indeed, I was experiencing some of those feelings for some of my friends themselves. Uh, I then became a, a Christian and as a, as a new follower of Jesus who had kind of recently come to terms with and recognized his own sexuality, the big question for me was, well, what, is, what does Jesus say on this stuff? Uh, where does he land on this, on this issue? And I'm guessing it will be a surprise to many people that Jesus would have anything to say at all. Uh, it's common for us to think today that Jesus is just sort of sexually tolerant. Um, he, he says strong and challenging things about injustice, about care for the poor. But many of us have, have come to think of Jesus as being unconcerned when it comes to issues of sexuality. And so many of us will just assume, well, well Jesus, I'm sure, is not bothered who we sleep with. And for many of us, the, the kind of image we have of the Christian faith is that the Old Testament's kind of medieval anyway, so we can ignore that. Uh, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, depending on which day of the week it is, is either kind of vaguely enlightened or vaguely not. But we assume Jesus is neutral, 
And therefore, he's kind of, he's easy on this issue. And yet, there are many things we can say about Jesus Christ. On any issue of life, Jesus is good. But he's not easy. He is a good master to follow for those of us who follow him. His words are always good. They're not always easy. And I want to begin with just one tiny thing Jesus says about human sexuality from Matthew chapter 5. Uh, small words with, with an extraordinary impact. So if you've got Matthew 5 to hand somewhere, um, if you've got a Bible on you or a phone, or if you're under 35 and have this verse on a tattoo somewhere, just um, <laughs> find it, look it up. Um, Jesus, uh, this is uh, Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28. Um, Jesus says these words. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, this is the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, at this part of the sermon, is kind of riffing on the Old Testament Ten Commandments and kind of recasting how they're understood and reapplying them. And so he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That was one of the Ten Commandments. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, it was forbidden to have sex outside of marriage, and so adultery was prohibited. Um, for, for there to be sex where one or both of the partners is married to someone else was forbidden in the Old Testament. Jesus says, you've heard this. And indeed they had. They, they would have known the Ten Commandments very, very well. And I'm sure for many of Jesus' listeners, steeped in these kinds of Old Testament scriptures, they were probably thinking, you know, Jesus has been pretty challenging on some of these other commandments, but I think a lot of them will be thinking, I think I'm pretty safe on this one. A lot of Jesus' listeners will be thinking, you know what, I've never physically committed adultery, so I'm good on this one, Jesus. So you can say what you like, and I, this is kind of my safety commandment. This one's going to be okay. And so they hear Jesus say, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, and they're presuming whatever else comes next is going to let them off the hook. But listen to what Jesus says next. He says, but I tell you. And so maybe at this point they're thinking, huh. So it's been said you should not commit adultery, but Jesus is going to say something in contrast. Maybe Jesus is going to kind of loosen this one up a bit and actually free us up in our sexual ethics. <laughs> but listen to what he says. Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus casts this as a, as a man looking at a woman. Jesus' audience was probably majority male. It may well be that Jesus is assuming this is going to be maybe more of an issue for some men than for some women. It applies to all of us, but look at the main thing Jesus does. Jesus actually redefines what adultery is, and not in a way that actually makes it 
a kind of an easier commandment for us to obey. Jesus is saying, this is not just about external behavior. It's about our internal attitude. It's about how we regard other people. That's the whole point of this commandment. It's not just to kind of regulate a physical act. It's to try and inculcate a particular attitude and demeanor towards other people. And so adultery is not just something that can take place in the bedroom. Jesus says it takes place in your heart. It's not so much what you do with your your genitals, it's what you do with your eyes. And it's what you do with your minds. Jesus says, if you look at someone lustfully, you are breaking this commandment. In other words, if you are regarding another person's body as a commodity that exists to please you, to gratify you as something to be consumed, whether physically or just mentally, Jesus is saying you're not just breaching some kind of arbitrary list of rules that were cooked up a thousand years ago. Jesus is saying you're going against the grain of how God has designed his human beings to live. Now, here's the thing, and this is why I want to start with this verse. What Jesus is teaching here, the sexual ethic of Jesus Christ, is meant to deeply humble and challenge every single one of us. Uh, The Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, if you kind of look at the context they come in, they were not given so that good people could feel congratulated. They were given to show up our natural incapacity to follow God in the way he wants us to. They were given to show his people in the the early stages of their life as a a national grouping that they were always going to need God's grace and mercy. That was always going to be the shape of their relationship. They were always going to need God's forgiveness. Now, I'm aware of the dangers of of an Englishman talking to Americans about dentistry. (laughs) But um, a a friend of mine said it's a bit like this. When you you go to the dentist, which apparently no one in England does, but uh, when you do, sometimes they, uh, they give you this kind of, maybe this is just an English thing, but sometimes they give you this cup of like pink liquid and you swill it around, gargle it and spit it out. And it shows up all the kind of goo and gunk on your teeth. Has that still happened? Do we do that here? Now, you have perfect teeth, so you don't need that, presumably. <laughs> but that, that is the purpose of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. It is to show up all the, the kind of gunk and dirt and sin in our hearts. So in other words, the the point of this commandment, this is why Jesus says what he says, is to convict all of us of our need for God's grace in this area of life. It's to show that all of us are, are, are broken and messed up in our sexuality. In other words, if you've gone through puberty, you're a sexual sinner. Quite possibly, if you haven't gone through puberty, you're also a sexual sinner. 
But the point is, all of us, all of us are in the same boat on this. Jesus levels the playing field. Irrespective of what your attractions are and whether it's to this kind of person or that kind of person, Jesus is saying, your sexuality is really jacked up. I know one of the sort of categories we tend to use today is whether churches are affirming or non-affirming. Jesus is non-affirming of all of us when it comes to sexuality. I need you to hear that. We're all broken, we're all skewed, we're all damaged in this part of our lives. And we're all damaging in this part of our lives, which leads to the, the other aspect of what Jesus is saying here. We, we can hear how Jesus' words are challenging to the person who's doing the looking. That's the primary aim of Jesus' words here, to convict all of us to think, actually, this is not a commandment I'm, I'm good on. To convict all of us that we, we misuse our sexuality in how we regard other people. And so... No one can afford to be proud in this area of life. No one can afford to feel as though they don't need God's help in this area of life. But just, just think about what Jesus is saying about the person being looked at in this verse. Jesus says... I tell you that anyone who looks lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. So Jesus is saying that person you are lusting about, that person you are thinking about, that person has a sexual integrity that is so precious to Jesus that it shouldn't be violated even in the privacy of someone else's mind. Now think about that. Jesus is saying, when you regard another image bearer and you treat them as something to satiate your sexual appetite, even if that's just in your mind, you're picking a fight with Jesus. There is a protectiveness to Jesus' words here. There's a protectiveness of our sexuality, a protectiveness of our sexual integrity. Uh, we live in, in a culture now that has been increasingly shaped by the Me Too movement. So much has been brought to light in the last few years. We'd always regarded ourselves as enlightened because of our sexual freedoms. We're now beginning to realize, actually, our sexual freedoms do need some constraints. We are just catching up with what Jesus Christ said 2,000 years ago, that other people matter. So much so, they, they matter even when it comes to how you think about them. So, 
Why does God care about who we sleep with? God not only cares about who we sleep with, God cares about who we might think about sleeping with. And the reason for that is because God cares about us and he cares about them. In other words, Jesus is saying what he's saying, not because he's got a low view of sexuality and it's just this bad thing, but because of precisely the opposite. Jesus has a high view of human sexuality. Um, Last year, I spent a few months in in southern Ohio, and because I was going to be there for a while, I was trying to find a car to use for for the the few months I was going to be there, and a friend of mine offered me use of his old pickup truck. It's Ohio. Everyone has a pickup truck. And this thing had, had already way exceeded its life expectancy. It was beaten up. It was dented. It was dirty. And therefore, he didn't care if an Englishman who was probably going to end up driving on the wrong side of the road anyway ended up using it. Uh, one, more, one more dent was not going to make much of a difference. And if the whole thing kind of ended up being wrapped around a tree somewhere, again, it didn't matter. It just wasn't worth much. So if some idiot like me can muck around in it and, and enjoy it and get some use out of it, so much the better. Now, I didn't take him up on that offer because someone else offered me use of their vehicle. And this vehicle was a beautiful convertible. <laughs> I forget the, the, the name of it and the make of it. It was, it was like a gold color. It was, it was lovely. It was amazing. So faced with that choice, there was, there was no need for deliberation. I didn't need to fast and pray about which of these vehicles <laughs> I was going to take. Now, here's the thing. With that convertible, I was, I was super conscientious about how I drove it. It was clean. It was shiny. It just looked awesome. And I wanted to be really careful in it. I even drove on the right-hand side of the road. <laughs> Now, the image is that that Christians have a low view of human sexuality, that it's like a a beat-up pickup truck. The reality is Jesus is giving us a shiny convertible view of human sexuality. Actually, our sexual integrity as, as God's creatures is precious. It matters what we do with our sexuality. It matters what we do with someone else's sexuality because we matter. And so Jesus doesn't kind of walk up to a microphone on planet Earth and say, hey, all of the stuff that's gone on in the Old Testament before about sexual ethics, let's just do away with that and have no boundaries whatsoever. Jesus takes things up a gear precisely because... This this is such a precious part of our humanity. But that is not to say it's easy. And in our own time and in this amazing city, Jesus' teaching on human sexuality is screamingly countercultural on so many fronts. Uh, This is probably the most contentious aspect of the Christian faith, if you're living in the Western world today. 
friends of mine have done surveys of their communities and, and cities to find what are the big objections people have to the Christian faith? What are the big questions people have? Often the one that is at the top of the list is this very question to do with the kind of Christian view of sexual ethics. It's interesting, um, maybe 15, 20 years ago, when people looked at Christianity and what Christianity teaches about sex and marriage and sexual ethics, the view of Christianity then was this is very old-fashioned and quaint, kind of laughably so. Increasingly today, 15, 20 years later, we are not just seen, if we take these words of Jesus seriously, we're not just seen as quaint and old-fashioned, we're seen as dangerous. So whereas 15 years ago, someone might say, yeah, I don't really want to become a Christian because you guys are a bit too moral. Today, people are saying, I don't want to become a Christian because you guys are too immoral. So what do we do with that? Well, if I may, it, it helps to remember that there is a reason... <laughs> The Christian sexual ethic is so countercultural in our world today. And that is because the Christian sexual ethic has been countercultural in every culture. Uh, Jesus' sexual ethics, reflected throughout the New Testament, were revolutionary at the time Jesus was saying these words. These were not easy teachings then either. Uh, Jesus lost lots of followers because they found his teaching too difficult. And that is even more apparent when you kind of look at the, the wider norms of the kind of Greco-Roman world into which Christianity first arrived. Um, Kyle Harper is a professor of classics and he wrote a book a couple of years ago called From Sin to Shame published by Harvard, and he describes the arrival of the Christian sexual ethic in the Roman Empire as being the first sexual revolution. It was not on the same continuum as how people already felt. It turned everything upside down. Uh, typically in the Roman Empire, if you were a man, if you were a Roman man, you would marry a woman based primarily on her social position and whether that kind of helped boost your own and in order to secure a legitimate heir. Um, you might not really be thinking about companionship. For companionship, you might turn to a mistress. That was the person you felt your real kind of sense of, of kindred spirit. Um, if you were just wanting sexual gratification, well, slaves were available for that. And if you were someone who couldn't afford a slave, well, that's what brothels were for. If you were a Roman woman, if you were married, you were effectively the property of your husband, and so you had to be faithful to him. And if you were unmarried, you were not the property of anyone and you lacked the protection of being married. You were regarded as something shameful. 
And into that world, the, the teaching of Jesus Christ on human sexuality was radical and unthinkable. And I want to suggest four particular concepts the Christian faith brings to our thinking about human sexuality. Okay, four particular things. Uh, the first, and some of these seem so obvious, but we don't realize they're obvious precisely because we've been influenced by the teachings of Jesus. And so the first concept is this, consent. The Christian sexual ethic was good news for the world then, and it is good news for us too, because it introduces this concept of human agency and freedom and consent. Now, this is the sexual ethic we probably most care about in our culture today. We have been taking it for granted. We have been assuming it. And therefore, we have been slow to recognize the extent to which this concept has been abused. But in the, if you take the long historical view, the whole concept of consent is abnormal. In the Roman world, the man did not need the consent of his wife or his mistress or his slave to have sex. It was all to do with who had the kind of social power. If you had social standing as a man, you had the right to have sex. That was the kind of perk of the, the level to which you had risen. And so if you were the wife of that man, or the slave of that man, or indeed if you were another man who didn't have that kind of social power, you had no right to consent. Now let me read some, some words from one of Paul's letters. This is from 1 Corinthians. Uh, let me read the, uh, from chapter 7, verse 4. Now just listen to this. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Now, first century Rome, Paul saying that is going to get a lot of amens <laughs> from the men. That was, that was normal, that was assumed, yeah, of course, that the wife's body belongs to the husband. She doesn't have authority over it, it belongs to her husband. But then Paul says, in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. No one had ever really said that before. That would have been the moment when, when Roman jaws started to hit the, the kind of mosaic on the floor. <laughs> that was revolutionary. That was unique. And it comes out of a, a worldview that says actually all of us have equal dignity as image bearers of God. And so as one scholar has said, Christianity invented consensuality. And so when we as an increasingly post-Christian Western society 
talk up consensuality, we don't realize we're, we're living off borrowed capital while soaring off, you know, it's like sitting on a, a branch and, and soaring off the branch you're sitting on because we're trying to detach ourselves from the Christian worldview from which our understanding of consensuality comes. And we're beginning to see that not just in the widespread abuses that are now coming to light, but even in our appetites for what we watch. Stuff that would have been seen as wildly pornographic is now mainstream. And we talk up consent whilst enjoying watching sexual abuse in our fiction. Uh, for some of us, the, the kind of pornography we watch is all about domination. Now, it is going to be hard to resist something physically if you have been mentally rehearsing it. And so the more we champion something in our hearts, the less equipped we are going to be to resist it when we have physical opportunities. So we talk up consent. I don't think we mean it. But Christianity says every human being has value because they have been created in the image of God. You mess with them, you mess with God. Uh, second concept is mutuality. It flows out of this, this concept of consent. Paul says in the same passage, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Again, the wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Notice what Paul is saying there. He's not saying, hey, your partner belongs to you, so take no, Paul is saying, you belong to your partner, so give. In other words, human sexual intimacy is not primarily meant to be about self-expression, but self-giving. Um, a friend of mine uh, for a while had this weird spoon in his house. Bear with me here. Um, he found it. He had no idea where it came from. It was a kind of spoon, normal sized, like teaspoon type spoon, but it had, a, it had a hole in the middle of it. And so it couldn't carry liquid or powder. And therefore, the very things you normally require a spoon to be able to convey. And so he had no idea where it came from or what it was for. So he decided to use it as his sugar spoon to keep it in the sugar bowl. Um, this is California. Do I need to explain what sugar is? <laughs> and he was someone, he had lots of international students around. He used to enjoy seeing how different cultural groups responded to a sugar spoon that couldn't carry sugar. And he said some cultures would be, would be quiet. They wouldn't say anything. They'd assume they were just doing it wrong and just try harder somehow. <laughs> And he said other cultures would just immediately get indignant and say, this spoon is ridiculous. <laughs> I'll leave you to guess which the Americans typically... Um... 
But then he discovered what, the, what it was. It's an olive spoon. So you've got a jar of olives, you, you put it in the thing and the stuff drains off and hey presto, you have a drained olive ready to consume. <laughs> now when you, when you learn what something is for, you can begin to make sense of the way it is. And friends, that is the same when it comes to our sexuality. Our sexuality is designed to be a means of self-giving, not of self-gratification. Uh, the pastor, Tim Keller, says that, that sex is designed to be a way of saying to someone else, I'm giving myself to you fully, exclusively, and permanently. Uh, fully because actually, contrary to the way we tend to think, in the Bible, sex is designed to f involve the whole person. And so you cannot give someone your sexuality without giving them your whole self. It involves the whole person, the whole body. Uh, it's a way of giving yourself to someone else exclusively because if you're giving your whole self to someone, you cannot be giving your whole self to somebody else. It is designed to be a zero-sum game in that respect. If you are giving to someone else and you are, you are married, you are taking away from your spouse. And it's meant to be a way of giving yourself to someone else permanently because this idea of self-giving is designed to form a deep bond that is not meant to be undone. It is kind of relational superglue. It just, it's God's way of, of helping two people to be bound together emotionally, physically, psychologically in a way that is not meant to be broken. So Jesus says that when, a, when a, a man and a woman get married, he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is saying in that act of sex, God is fusing two people together. And that is why in Christianity, sex is not designed to be had outside the covenant of a marriage. It has to be within the context of where there is already unconditional commitment and love to the other person. It is not a way of temporarily meeting my, the needs of my sexual appetite. Um, you may have seen the, the movie Vanilla Sky, it was probably 20 years old now, it's not the best Tom Cruise movie ever made. So you're not missing much if you haven't seen it. But there's a moment where he's had a, a one-night stand with Cameron Diaz's character. She catches up with him later on uh, in the movie and says, listen, when you sleep with someone, your body makes promises even if you don't. That's insightful. Um, last concept, because we're running out of time, that Christianity brings to our thinking about sexuality is spirituality. Um, historically, Christians have had a reputation for being anti-sex, and there have been many Christians who have justified that reputation. 
Uh, there was one Christian leader in the medieval ages who said that Christians should not have sex on Sundays because Jesus was raised from the dead on a Sunday, okay? Or on Mondays in memory of those who have departed, okay? So not Mondays either. On Thursdays, because that's the day you're meant to think about the second coming of Jesus Christ. On Fridays, because Jesus Christ was crucified on a Friday. And on Saturdays, in order to honour the, the mother of Jesus, Mary. And you can imagine this Christian leader desperately trying to also find reasons for Tuesdays and Wednesdays to be kind of <laughs> off limits as well. The Bible is almost embarrassingly positive about sexual intimacy within the covenant of marriage. The very first human scene in the Bible is of a naked man singing to a naked woman in Genesis 2. And God's there. They're not doing that behind God's back. They're doing that in his presence and with his blessing. Uh, there are whole, there's a whole book in the Old Testament celebrating the sexual pleasure between a husband and wife, the, the Song of Songs. And so God has given sex to be a good gift. It's his idea, not ours. And the reason is, or part of the reason is, it, it's designed to point beyond itself. It seems to me that our, our culture has two very contradictory attitudes to sex. Uh, it seems to me that when, when we hear some of the, the challenging things Jesus has to bear, say about human sexuality, the response is often, oh, for crying out loud, it's just sex, it's just physical, it doesn't matter. We don't really believe that. The Me Too movement shows us why. It is not just physical. And yet at the same time, we're treating sex as being everything. We, I've heard people say, listen, I, I would be willing to become a Christian, but the moment Jesus starts laying down boundaries about my sex life, I'm not interested. That becomes our bottom line. Because that, we think, is the one area of life that is most going to fulfill us. And so on one hand, we think it doesn't matter. On the other hand, we think it's everything. We think it is the key to being fulfilled and self-actualized. And yet, the most fully human and complete person who ever walked this earth, Jesus Christ, never married, was never in a romantic relationship, and never had sex. So the moment we think those things are essential to being complete, we are saying that Jesus Christ was not really fully a complete human being. No, instead, Jesus shows us where that sense of completion is actually meant to be found. And it's in him. It's in our creator. Throughout the Bible, God describes himself as a husband. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. And throughout the Bible, God's people are referred to as a bride because that, that is the ultimate marriage. 
And human sex and romance and marriage is meant to be a signpost to that relationship. The Bible begins with the marriage of of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it ends with the marriage of Jesus and his people. And that first marriage is meant to act a bit like a movie trailer for that last marriage. So let me quote from the cultural artifact that is the first Zoolander movie. (laughs) Uh, If you've not seen Zoolander, it's predicated on the notion the more good-looking you are, the more stupid you are. Okay, I personally find that very offensive. (laughs) And the the main character, Zoolander, is a male model, so he's really good-looking and therefore very, very stupid. And there's a scene in the movie where they've, they've designed, they're going to build a school in his honor, and they've, they've got the architect's model all kind of set out and ready. They invite him to come and look at it. He walks in the room, he looks at the model, and he's furious. And I can hear some of you doing the line in your head right now. He says, is this a school for ants? And then he says, it needs to be at least three times bigger than this. And the stupidity is, he's mistaken the model for the real thing. Now, we do the same thing. If you think a romantic or a sexual relationship is going to fulfill you, you are mistaking the signpost for the destination. You are mistaking the model for the reality. If you marry someone thinking that person is going to complete you, you're going to be a nightmare to be married to. (laughs) And I am deadly serious. You're going to crush that other person or they're going to crush you because they were never designed to complete you. They can't. And you are going to wear yourself out, or them out, or both of you out, by trying to make that happen. No, God has given us sexuality to remind us that there is a more intense longing. There is a deeper union. There is a greater consummation, and it is to be found in knowing Jesus Christ. So if we understand the words of Jesus Christ when it comes to human sexuality, all of us should feel humbled, challenged, and convicted. All of us have messed this up. And yet Jesus has come for people who have messed it up. He has come not only to clean up the mess that we've made in our hearts, in our lives, and in other people's lives. He has come to give us the reality, the fullness of what we were so ridiculously grasping for in these these kinds of ways. So let me close by inviting us afresh 
to Jesus. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and seek comfort, to all who fail and need strength, and to all who sin and need a saviour, Jesus says, come and find fullness in him. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Our Father, we've looked at, in one sense, a small word from Jesus, and yet it is an, a stupendous word for us to come to terms with. So please help us to have the humility and the determination to learn from him. Please protect us from thinking we're smarter than him. And for those of us who are, are, are deeply aware of just how messed up we are in our sexuality, help us to come to Jesus for grace, for healing, for fullness, for freedom. And we pray in his precious name. Amen.